Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Where the Dark Corners Are. Hello, hello. I am Vina, and I am your Dark Travels hostess. Tonight, we crack open our passports and head to Sydney, Australia. And I have to say, this is our third, our third trip to Australia, the land down under. And it's, I, and I've said this before, I am not too familiar with the history of Australia other than it being a penal colony for the British Empire just like some parts of the United States uh, Georgia the state of Georgia being one of them and from there you know they they have you know formed a, a form of government and they've done a lot of things to create the country that they have today but unfortunately just like some of the unfortunate moments in American history you know, Australia's had some brutal moments. And again, you know, America's too, as Canada and Britain. So <laughs> it's always curious to learn more and more about foreign countries and especially ones that, or information that you had never heard prior. But tonight isn't about necessarily about history, it is it's more about the paranormal journey, <laughs> if you will. And Australia, I, I seriously, again, this is my third stop here in, in Australia because Australia is truly laden with the, the paranormal, the ghosts, the spectacles, the spirits. It's just, it's, I, and, and again, like a lot of places in Australia, I really had my pick here in Sydney. So our first stop in Sydney is situated on the northern banks of the Parramatta River. Open for business on November 19th, 1838. I'm of course referring to the Mental Asylum located at Bedlam Point, initially named the Tarban Creek Lunatic Asylum. Today, it is known as Gladsville. Intended to only house 60 patients, it quickly filled up and it was nearly tripling at capacity within a few years of its opening. Now, their patients suffered from a range of mental illnesses such as dementia, depression, mental disability, those who were traumatized by domestic violence, to, I mean, and, you know, these are just the ones I'm listing, but obviously every form of mental illness imaginable, and including what they called mental damage that was caused by extremely strong but poorly made alcohol. And as for the staff, they were cared for by prison guards and members of the first New South Wales Corps who were 
in general, by profession, typically soldiers, anywho. So, like I said before, in a few years, the capacity nearly triples. In 1844, there are at least 150 people crammed into these dormitories. And again, it was only meant for 60 people. There are no wings or floors with designated illnesses. So, basically, the people who are just clinically depressed were mixed into those who were clinically insane. So they didn't have like specialized wards that were geared towards meeting, you know, the needs of the, the, the person and their diagnosis. Now, the forms of treatment that the patients were subjected to included being restrained by chains. In particularly, they were chained to their beds at night to prevent them from wandering off and, more importantly, to prevent them from harming others. Aside from this, there were other forms of unethical mistreatments and abuse. Some were subjected to primitive electric shock therapy. Uh, some people were just straight murdered there. Some of the some of the patients were raped. Meanwhile, others were being neglected, and there was just a basic outright sense of sadistic brutality on part of the staff that made, in general, the asylums nothing more than an abusive warehouse, it sounds like. Now, as I said before, beyond these horrific things going on, they were neglected. And not only were they neglected and abused by the doctors, but we're also talking about other patients. So all around, entering these places just really seemed like a horrible, horrible idea. And you know, all of these things happened in Gladsville. So let's talk about some specific events. In 1843, two men were found to have repeatedly abused several female patients, and by that I'm the mean really rape. On May 23rd, 1849, a mentally ill patient fractured the skull of another patient with a chamber pot. This injured patient died six, six seven weeks later. So again, it's not just the staff that were mistreating and brutalizing the patients the patients themselves were brutalizing and murdering each other another type of report indicated that two patients had died because of the unseemly conditions of the asylum again they were neglected but a, a good example of how primitive the electric shock therapy that they were subjected to and how there was very little patient rights at this time in 1954. So we're talking less than 70 years ago. This, this patient, unfortunately, her head was burned significantly because of the amount of current that was sent through her body while she was receiving, you know, like I said, a primitive form of electric shock treatment. And apparently, while some of the doctors were administering these electric shock treatments, they were just, like, casually standing by smoking cigarettes. So, I mean, it didn't really seem like they had a whole lot of respect for the patients as well. In addition to that, in an article dated November 24th, 1954, and I guess 1954 was kind of a rough year for everybody there, a client who was suffering from depression was subjected to too many sleeping tablets and shock treatments. It was it 
it was as if the cure was worse than the illness. So here it's kind of a clear understanding that these patients weren't really treated to cure them. It kind of sounds like they were treated with the intent to experiment with them. But again, the patients kind of gave what they got too. And I, I just, you know, you go through these lists of all these atrocities and you're just sitting there going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. But the patients also attacked the staff. And in one case in 1884, a senior attendant by the name of Robert Colvin actually died from inflammation caused by being kicked in the stomach by a patient. In another instance, in 1889, an attendant by the name of Hubert Small was basically murdered when a patient with a wielding broom fractured his skull and he later died from the injuries. So it's just a brutal place to be, basically. And of course, this brutality and the anger and the resentment and this unholy ground is now plagued with paranormal activities. And 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 bear in mind, in on top of the staff dying and on top of the the patients dying, we're talking between all these abuses for the for the patients, it is believed that approximately one thousand two hundred and twenty eight patients will die of this facility. And to top it off, because of the shameful stigma associated with having a relative or a loved one living in such a place, many, many families chose not to take home the bodies of their loved ones. So the hospital was left to deal with the cadavers. And basically what they just did was they dug up this mass grave and dumped the bodies in. So a sad beginning, a sad middle and a very, very sad end. Today, the building is abandoned. It is reportedly caked with layers of graffiti as the facility and the asylum was decommissioned and closed down in 1997. So we're talking an asylum that operated for over 130 years. Today, and because obviously the tremendous turmoil has left its dark mark on the property, The locals and nearby residents speak of and warn others of dark energies that basically feel these now ruins. And it is believed that a strange presence literally lurks in the crumbling walls of this facility. So lots of bad juju, lots of tragic endings on both patient and staff alike, and just it just sounds like just a dark, dark place. On our first stop in Sydney. Now, moving on from the asylum, let's talk about the quarantine station. Open for business during Australia's colonial days, when ships would come in, bringing future Aussies to the country, the passengers sometimes were infected with contagious diseases, such as typhoid, uh, smallpox, or the bubonic plague. And in order to kind of combat this and to prevent the spread of diseases... The country ordered that these passengers be taken to the quarantine station or the queue station so that they can be quarantined in wards. And again, this makes sense because you don't want an outbreak. So in the course of its history, officially, and I'm using air quotes when I say that, 
Close to 600 people died at the station out of 26,000 people who had been there between the quarantine site being founded in 1832 until its closure in 1984. So just a little over 100 years. And they, they consider that a resounding success. And again, if their numbers are accurate, I, could, I, I can agree with that. But nobody wants to look like they didn't do well. Either way, it is said that those who did not make it past quarantine and unfortunately perished on the premises, it is said that their restless souls are rumored to roam the grounds, bound, obviously, by their unfortunate deaths, and now they're hanging out. And the curious thing about the hauntings here is that they've basically been going on for the last hundred years, so almost from the beginning of the quarantine station operation. So, again, this place basically operated as a hospital, and as such, it had staff, doctors, and nurses. And as it was conducting business, like I said, because the hauntings had been going on almost from the beginning, nurses on the night shift would report seeing the ghostly apparition of a Chinese man with long pigtails wandering through the wards and, you know, wandering the, I was going to say parking lot, but that's not accurate. <laughs> wandering across the verandas, running across the property. And they actually call him Mr. Chen. And he primarily likes to roam around the third class living quarters where apparently the passengers who were not of Caucasian descent had to live while on the compound. So segregation, there you have it. In addition to the nuns reporting that, park rangers living on the station regularly report seeing ghostly figures shifting about, as well as lights being on in otherwise empty hospital wards. And uh, in, as a park ranger, they obviously go to check it out, see if any you know hood rat kids are running around, Aussie hood rat kids <laughs> running around. And when they come to the rooms with the lights they find that nobody is there and nothing is amiss in these rooms. In addition to the park rangers, people, the visitors themselves, have seen ghosts. They have felt cold spots. They've even been touched when they've been by themselves. And the ghosts that they're seeing, they're like sitting on the beds, and they range from old people to young people. And apparently there's this matron who walks around like she still owns the joint. And apparently she's not a fan of hearing people complain about the bathrooms. And unfortunately, just like Gladsville Asylum, it is believed that some people were subjected to sexual abuse while being quarantined there. The shower block is considered to be one of the most evil parts of the quarantine station because it is believed that the sexual abuse was prevalent in this area and may even had involved children or a particular child. As such, the, the overall essence just makes the people who, who have experienced this phenomenon just use the word, it's evil. And one of the things that tend to happen, because they do actually have tours that go through and offer information on this particular historic site, a common occurrence that tends to happen is like the light bulbs in the shower block tend to explode. 
In addition to current day, again, going back a little bit in the history, women who had lived in the station had said that they had often seen a sailor walking by the window of the mortuary. And again, there was a morgue because, it, like I said, it operated at, like a hospital. And like all hospitals need to have a morgue for those just-in-case accidents. You know, accidents. But either way, even the morgue, and for the obvious reasons, have its paranormal issues. The doors of the morgue were frequently found to be open to the point where staff had to install locks on the doors to stop the doors from opening in the middle of the night. The ghosts outsmart the ghost, apparently. And it is believed that it is a small child that is a resident ghost of this particular area because it is believed this ghost has been seen, especially checking out people who are on tours, as well as grabbing someone's hand or tugging some of their clothing. And in addition to the child, there is a magician with a top hat nicknamed by the staff as Mr. Slimy, who has also been spotted walking around the grounds. So here you have these women in the 1920s and 30s seeing the sailor. Then you have this kid hanging around the tours, checking out what people are wearing these days. And then you got this guy... And it, I think it's pretty telling when they call you Mr. Slimy, <laughs> the kind of ghost he is walking around as well. So in addition to the ghosts they're seeing and t- being felt by the ghosts, people have also heard disembodied voices being heard from the, the wharfs as if people who had just arrived on their ship disembarking. And as curious as it sounds, the wharf... And again, it's over water. The wharf itself has been burned down three separate times. And in addition to all of this, they've had, it's like the ghosts like to play practical jokes. So like they'll go and try and open a locked door or unlock a locked door and it won't budge, it won't budge. And then somebody else will try and it will automatically open for that person, for the second person. Or... There will be lights seen in buildings that contain no electricity. And uh, again, just like the asylum, they'll go and check out what's going on and there won't be anybody there. People have, again, seen white floating figures, the ghosts, hanging out around the verandas, the basic compound. And, and, and it's not just the staff, it's also the visitors and to top it all off, this is to me a little bit more creepier, both tourists and staff alike have seen these white apparitions, these ghostly figures floating across the front of their cars at night w- when driving home on the road that leads out of the station. I mean, that would, I don't know, I might pee or something <laughs> just if I, if I thought I hit a person and it turned out to be a ghostly apparition playing some malicious practical joke, I would not be happy. But either way, it it just seems like, you know, the ghosts are like, we've got this down. We know how to make you humans, you live people, uh, jump. But in addition to all these, and, uh, and we're talking a tremendous amount of ghostly sightings, people also feel nauseated. They have, in an overall sense of unwellness, They've also seen and been exposed to objects being moved about without anybody doing it, any visible person doing it. And 
there have been instances to the point where visitors have been so spooked that they've literally, like, bailed on the tours, on exploring the grounds after experiencing some, you know, unpleasant (laughs) and frightening paranormal activity. In addition to the boy in the morgue, because in general it is believed that at least 20 separate children are said to haunt the site, and one of them being a little boy named Isaac Lowe's. And he's actually been one of the most prevalent children seen about the compound. He unfortunately died on August 24th, 1878, of scarlet fever. And as anybody knows, any affection prior to the invention, or discovery rather, of antibiotics was pretty much a death sentence. Now this place is nestled on Manley's North Head. And it is considered to be one of Sydney's most popular wedding venues and scenic hotspots. But most importantly, especially for you Aussies out there, because this is a paranormal podcast, any budding ghost hunters would be thrilled to know that the Q station actually offers a series of ghost tours, each tailored to fit different groups of visitors. So you can do, they have something as standard as a two- half hour tour and they do actually have the child friendly version of events but more importantly for those who are brave enough those who have the gumption if you will and are willing they can spend the entire night investigating the building with their ghost hunting equipment so it sounds like they really do try to promote the place as I mean as it is it is a haunted Quarantine station, without a doubt. Now, as I said earlier, Australia started out as a penal colony of the British Empire. And one such place, one such uh, place that held prisoners, is a place called Cockatoo Island, located in Sydney Harbour. It is a diverse site that has everything from a convict jail and a reform school for girls to a shipyard. So it's like an island inside the harbor. It's I actually don't know how many miles it is off of Sydney, but I do know you can take, obviously, a tour boat. And it is considered to be one of Sydney's most haunted locations ever since the killing of a soldier back in 1857. Because again, like I said, it was a pretty brutal prison. In fact, the Australians kind of liken it to America's Alcatraz. And that does make sense because if you guys know Alcatraz, Alcatraz is a prison on an island by itself. So as such, between 1839 and 1869, a lot of prisoners died in their plight to escape. And as such, as a just a uh, outright brutal prison between 1839 and 1869 numerous prisoners died in the custody of the of the prison others died in an attempt to escape just like the three or four who attempted to escape their alcatraz in san francisco and in one instance there's apparently a famous story of a guard being murdered by an inmate so it just sounds like brutal brutality on brutality in fact they would even, like, to punish the prisoners, they would put them in extremely narrow chambers that was carved into solid rock for solidarity confinement. 
But they would also do cruel things to them, like they would station some of the convicts beneath the cookhouse, and so they would be subjected to this confinement in these small chambers so that they would smell the smells and hear and smell what other people are eating while they're being punished in their confinements. So it it just sounds like it was a brutal, brutal system, and everybody was pretty much subjected to violence. Now, later on, the prisoners would be taken away, and this same facility would be used as a girls' reformatory school. And they would use these very, very same cells to punish the little girls who were part of the Bilola Reformatory, an industrial school for girls that opened for business in 1871. So here you have the bad juju and the the hate and the brutality already established by the prisons. And now you have a new group of people who are being subjected to punishment and torture as well, but only this time in the form of young girls. And not just young girls. We're talking girls who were basically in the ages of 8 to 18, who were orphaned, abandoned children, who were involved in street gangs, and or Aboriginal girls who were taken from their families. They rounded them up and decided to establish a place to help them help. Maybe not, that may not have been the best word. A place to take them to perhaps reform their ways. So the head of the school was a gentleman by the name of George Lucas. And Lucas, obviously not the American film and director of the, of the exceptional Star Wars series, he was particularly known to brutally punish the girls for misbehaving. Now, the girls were, again, locked up in the dormitories. They were forced to sleep on the floor, on the, on the cold, hard floor. They were refused forks, spoons, and knives. They were forced to drink water from a common trough. And the girls who, quote-unquote, misbehaved, act up, and, you know, get locked in the confinement ones, the same ones that the prisoners were kept in. And while there, while living in these horrible conditions, they were being prepared only for domestic servitude. So they were basically being filtered into a life of poverty as a servant to somebody, and they were often subjected to violence and cruelty such as being beaten, being dragged by their hair in order to get them, quote-unquote, prepared for domestic servitude. In fact, basically what ends up happening is that the cruelty and the brutality that these young ladies were subjected to not only get discovered, but the the horrificness of the matter causes the school to get shut down in 1880. And later on, they would actually compare the treatment of these girls to the treatment of this like floating ship school for boys out in the Sydney Harbor. And the disparity between the two groups was just completely unforgivable, unimaginable, and absolutely horrendous. Now, in the course of the history of this particular reformatory school, in 1884, a woman by the name of Gother Mann became the superintendent, and her daughter, Mary Caroline, quote-unquote, Minnie Mann, was part of the 
reformatory staff and family that was there to operate the school. Well, it is said that both Gother Mann and her daughter, Minnie, are currently roaming the old reformatory. People see her, Minnie in her white dress and and they'll and then like later on they'll see her picture and be like, Oh my god, that's the little girl that I saw in the white dress. Minnie also has the habit of going up to people and asking them to play with her, particularly in the middle of the night. Because here's kind of the awesome thing about this particular place. Not only can you go and tour this island, you can actually camp and spend the night there. And this was the case with two campers who were basically disturbed by this little girl ghost asking them to play with her in the middle of the night. In addition to Minnie, they do see other girls dressed in white dresses near the house, and people have heard the disembodied voices of crying, and people have been overwhelmed with the sincere sadness of certain spots in the former dormitories. So just just the essence of both the girls and probably the prisoners still linger on this island. Even the shipping yard that I had previously mentioned, after 1900, it became a crucial shipping yard and a naval dock. And over the course of its operation, workers themselves have been killed and just outright horrific industrial accidents. And in one case, one person mysteriously, quote unquote, vanished completely. So lots of darkness here. And as a result, it is said that people have seen dark shapes and intelligent hauntings. Again, Minnie's interacting. They also believe that there's a lot of residual hauntings which is basically where you see the same event occurring over and over again or the same event is transpiring over and over again because the memory has been burned into the the land and the property. People have had problems with their electronics, their phones. Things get drained quickly, even their ghost hunting equipments. And they really do believe, to some extent, this particular island has poltergeists as well. And they're not nice. There's they're big assholes out there. So you're gonna want to be careful. <laughs> and I have to tell you, it's like I'm reading this stuff and I'm like, my God, I need to get here. And of course, certain spots have certain specific paranormal activity going on. So people have said that while visiting the Bilia house, people have reported the sensation of having something bow down their necks or the overall sense of dread and again apparitions it's like this place is just saturated that's kind of the right word i think and people have had the experience of smelling tobacco smoke hearing footsteps in otherwise emptied rooms and there's a particular window where the face of a former resident is seen so i mean the word saturated is perfect. If you are really looking for a place to check out, even camp, then Cockatoo Island should be your next stop. Okay, so moving from the island and heading back to the mainland of Australia, let's talk about the Durningholst Jail. Now, as I said before, 
Sydney is a convict town, or that would be the terminology used in Australia. And as such, in the 1820s, colonial architect Francis Greenway was commissioned to design a goal, a gal, a goal, a jail, <laughs> that would overlook Sydney. And unfortunately, because Greenway himself was a convict, when he submitted the plans, they basically scrapped it for plans of a jail that was that was built in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, United States. However, the walls of the jail get built by convicts in 1822 to 1824. So the project gets started, and you could tell to this day the visible marks made by the convicts when it, building this initial wall. As for the jail itself, the work actually begins in 1835, and it takes 50 years to finish. During his long life, the Darlinghurst goal hosted public executions that were conducted on makeshift gallows just outside the main gate located on Forbes Street, as well as hosting quote-unquote private executions in the permanent gallows, again, just on the inside the, of the main walls near the intersection of Darlinghurst Road and Burton Street. And I don't understand what that means, to be honest with you. I I don't know what that means. So, if you any Australians out there know what that means, I mean, what does that mean? They paid the, the, the staff to execute somebody? I don't know. But if you know, please send me an email <laughs> to let me know exactly what that means. Anywho, so starting in 1852, at least 76 people get executed on this premise, including the last woman to be hung in New South Wales, a lady by the name of Louisa Collins. And the last person to be hung at this jail was in 1908. So just decades of hanging people privately and not so privately and any other jail or prison, life at Derlinghurst was literally were difficult, to say the least. The cells, originally designed to house one inmate, ended up holding up to three. And the outside walls near the entrance, waste and sewage basically collected there as a huge pond, causing this overwhelming, horrific stench bomb, if you will, to just be sitting there and everyone's subjected to that and over time due to the neglect and just poor treatment of the inmates Derlinghurst gained the nickname of Starvinghurst because of the meager rations given to the inmates so you have overcrowding problems you have problems with drainage you have problems with diseases because typhoid would spread quickly without a doubt and due to the necessity to wall the courtyards in order to segregate prisoners and obviously to prevent a, a riot from rushing the gates, the walls basically prevented airflow. So now you don't have circulation to blow all that nasty cesspool of a water hole. <laughs> um, not even a water hole, but just the nastiness away. On windy days. And a prime example of their of their overcapacity is the women's cell block, which was designated for 156 women. In the 1850s, there were over 400 
150 women in the block. So, I mean, it's just rampant, crowded and rampant with nothing but prisoners. And it gets used starting from 1840 to 1912. And in 1912, this new model prison at Long Bay opens and all of the inmates at Darlinghurst gets transferred to Long Bay. However, because it's still a place where it can keep people inside, it will later be used as an internment camp during World War I. After World War I, it gets transferred to the Department of Education, and it gets adapted into the building for the use of the East Sydney Technical College. And it is here when people start complaining about the ghostly activities as it's being restored for the technical college. And in particular, they come to see that there are three well-known haunted areas of the old jail. One of them being a classroom where it is believed that this was the place where the prisoners were kept prior to hanging. So obviously with the anxiety of about to be killed, about to be hung for their crimes, just an overwhelming sense of a lot of emotions being imprinted in the area. And of course, there's just ghostly hood rat shit, if you will, happening on just the grounds alone. And so some of the things that the staff are experiencing, lights will go on by themselves, doors would close by themselves, and certain areas have really odorous stenches that make it hard for them to stay in that area. In fact, the classroom being one of the particular areas, they have this experience where it's just the stench is so overwhelming they can't stay. They've even have seen the ghost of an Asian woman who reportedly is looking for her inmate husband. Why exactly her ghost is haunting this particular area? I can only speculate. Get it? Speculate. Spectre. Spectre. Now this unfortunate lady is not alone. And in one particular area near a set of staircase outside is believed to be haunted by five separate ghosts. And people have heard ghosts like knocking around on the blackboard in the blue room, in the blue classroom. Teachers themselves have reported seeing ghosts, one being seen in the toilets. Another claims that he was followed home by a ghost. Now today, this ominous sandstone structure was revamped into the National Art School in 1995. But for you today, you can go on tours of the historical jail and you get to hear the dark, sad stories that still pretty much plague this Darvinghurst jail and walk the paths of the prisoners and maybe have a paranormal adventure of your own. Now, so we talked about several places you can visit and... Obviously, with Sydney being so overwhelmed with spirits, even their restaurants are haunted. Even their pubs are haunted. So let's talk about Hero of the Waterloo. Hero of the Waterloo was built in 1843 and is one of the oldest standing pubs in all of Sydney. And it is believed to be the most haunted pub 
of all of Australia. In its heyday, it was pretty popular with sailors, and it is believed that there was a mysterious underground uh, cellars and tunnels, and it was believed those were used to move both booze one way and carry out drunk or bamboozled sailors the other way, forcing them to do work as sailors on ships that have already sailed. So talk about entrapment and enslavement, but either way, here of the Waterloo, that's what the rumors are. However, despite these unsavory transactions, if you will, it is actually believed that the major source of the paranormal activity that's going on has to do with a former landlady by the name of Anne Kirkman. Anne was supposedly pushed to her death down the stairs of the pub by her husband in 1849. So what is Anne doing in her afterlife years? Well, apparently she likes to play the piano, especially after hours when everyone else is gone. And there's just an overwhelming presence of Anne in the in this particular pub. And apparently ghost hunters and mediums alike love coming to check out Hero of the Waterloo due to its paranormal essence. So if you're thirsty and you want to try a pint of something, I think they serve pints in Australia. Again, send me a letter if I'm wrong. You can check out Hero of the Waterloo and maybe with your pint see something paranormal transpire. Now after you get your little paranormal pint on, you obviously want a place to rest your head. So let's talk about the most notoriously haunted hotel. I am, of course, referring to the Russell Hotel in the Rocks. It was built in 1887, and it is believed that it was built on the historic site of a convict's hospital that was initially built in 1788. And this this hospital was actually the first general hospital in all of Australia. So as such, being a hospital, this place obviously saw many deaths, including when there was an outbreak of the bubonic plague in Sydney and people were getting treated there and unfortunately perish. Aside from being managed as a hotel, a hostel for sailors was also Established here as well. And, of course, with the sailors, there's significant evidence to suggest that there was a a covert brothel cat house scenario going on. And between the hotel, the hostel, and the brothel, needless to say, several murders transpired here. And in fact, there was one, including that of a sailor who was believed to be murdered by a prostitute. Which brings me to Room 8. Room 8 is said to be haunted by the spirit of a sailor. No surprise there. The sailor only likes to reveal himself to women. So, if you're a guy, you're out of luck. But, if you're a woman, it is said that he will appear in the early hours of the morning. In particular, around the hour of of 4 a.m. Australian time, obviously. And even though he doesn't really cause any harm, just this dude, this rando, staring over (laughs) you as you're sleeping is enough to make anybody 
basically get the fright of their life. Now, roommate might be the most active in the hotel, but there are other rooms worth mentioning. So let's talk about rooms 20 and 24. These rooms as well have given their guests some interesting paranormal activities and experiences. And in addition to the rooms upstairs in the downtown area of the hotel, many people have reported of a woman in white and she apparently likes to make her way through the kitchen, the bar, or the dining area. And her clothing is obviously a reflection of the time period that she had lived and died in. And based on what she's wearing, it is believed that she was either a nurse or a maid. But in general, this hotel has a definite sense of paranormal activity. So let's talk about what's happening here. There are reports of disembodied footsteps throughout the entire building. There are cold spots, just sudden drops in temperatures, the overwhelming sensation of uneasiness, uncomfortableness. Electronics tend to wig out. They'll turn themselves on and off by themselves. People have heard and reported screams coming from otherwise empty rooms. So soaked, just soaked with ghostly activity at the Russell Hotel. If I were to come to Sydney, this sounds like the place I would stay at, but I don't know. I might camp on Cockatoo Island because that place sounds like it would be one mega paranormal experience. All right, so that is what I have for you tonight. Um, normally I end with the Facebook announcement, and you can reach us with an email at where the dark corners are at gmail.com. But tonight, and for this particular episode, I would like to dedicate it to my dear friend who had recently passed. Christina, wherever you are, I will miss you for the rest of my life.